The peace of Christ be with you. It's good to see you here. I understand there are hundreds of people out walking in Tiburon with the break of the rain, so uh, God love them. Sorry they're not here, but <laughs> frankly, who can blame them? So if when I open my eyes in a minute, you're gone, you're forgiven. <laughs> Let's give ourselves a gift of about three deep breaths so that we can fully arrive here so that we can be present in this place, so that we can be aware of the living spirit in our midst. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Standing or sitting, please join in the call to worship. In the gift of this present moment, be joined to God in Christ. Let ways of hurt and hurtfulness be healed and transformed, open to the undeterrable love and grace. Encounter the living one. <clears throat> be seated. A warm welcome to you to worship this morning. We're thrilled to see you, whether you've been coming for a long time or perhaps you're a visitor. I hope you feel welcomed in this place. To that end, after the service, we'll have a coffee and refreshments in Finley Hall, which is just right through into the community building and to the left. If you would, especially if you're new, sign those attendance registers during the offering. They're then those little pads, pass them down and back later in the service so that those worshiping around you can greet you by name and so that we might know that you were here, especially if you want to leave contact information so we could follow up with you personally. Also see some folks back after a while, some alumni of the youth program, youth ministry, forgive me, Jeff. It's always nice to see folks come home again. That's terrific. Shall we join together in our community prayer? Let's pray. Renewing God, you offer us release from destructiveness, selfishness, and deceit. You help us right wrongs and make clean breaks. You promise not to abandon us. God, we seek to embrace 
what you offer us at the heart of every moment. We seek and accept forgiveness as a pathway to new life. We commit ourselves not just to our own journeys, but to the community, knowing that together we are one body. Amen. And our prayers continue in quiet. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. In Christ, there's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Know that we have been forgiven. Know that we have been set free and be at peace. Amen. One of the ways we try to take care of each other as a community and strengthen our ties is to share what's going on in our lives, whether it's a joy or a concern or something we're holding that we want to be holding in concert with someone else. So if you have something to offer, just raise your hand and speak up best you can. Oh. That's lovely. If, if you couldn't hear all of that, Ruthie lifted up prior in a prior week a friend Wendy in Kansas who lost her home to a fire and was burned in the fire herself. She's recovering. She's doing well. And in the midst of the ashes, she and her wife were able to find their wedding rings. So these graces in the midst of tragedy. Yeah. Rebecca. Rebecca is the director of a co-op preschool in San Anselmo, and in the storm a few days ago, a very large tree, I've seen a picture, fell on the preschool, crashing through it. Nobody was in there at the time, but obviously they're displaced. One of the beautiful things I'll share, because you shared this with me, is that families, it's a co-op, so they're used to being committed, have been opening their homes to groups of the children in the time since, but obviously it's a big disruption. Preschool's been around since 1947, so I know they're looking for a new temporary home, and obviously just a way forward. Carol. Oh. Oh my gosh. So Carol is giving thank. Carol, too, has had a tree fall on her property, not her home. And uh, the family two pews in front of her is going to come clean it up. So next week, if that corner is densely populated, we'll, we'll know why. And Carol, I'm going to add to your joy. Those of us who went on the Kentucky mission trip um, worked to repair houses that were destroyed by a vicious tornado last year. And one of the joys of the past week, or well, few weeks, is we've now seen pictures of the houses that we got partway finished. And at least the one that Carol and I were working on was not only finished, it's furnished, it's beautiful. So what a, what a grace. Yeah. Barb. Um, yeah. Yeah. John? John? John is Wally. Oh, and now I'm lost, Barb. Anyway, 
Thank you. Uh, as you may have read on the prayer chain this week, Julie Wathen died at age 97 this Monday. Surrounded by loved ones, we were able to see her near the end, and she was really in good spirits and largely comfortable, but we mourn her death and celebrate her life. Deb. Thanks, Deb. It's good to have you back. Yeah, Jane. Jane asked for prayers for her sister-in-law, is that right? Who has a, a tumor on her kidney. And we prayed at the 8.30 service for people awaiting diagnoses. It's that uncomfortable time when you don't know, is this nothing? Or is this something? Right? So we hold that. We know people have those in their life. Yeah. Is he here? Oh, oh, I'm seeing Sandy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. So we're remembering Stan this morning. As you know, he had a neck injury, and he's been a trooper through wearing a brace for all these weeks and weeks. And Sandy, we give thanks for your loving care for him. Shall we... Pray. Oh, one more? That's fine. Let's keep it going. Oh, thank you. Clark. Prayers of concern for the people of Ukraine and the Christmas Jews. Thank you for lifting us up beyond our own community. Clark remembers Ukraine and the, what's happening now with the end of the Christmas truce. Yeah. Are you, where were you pointing? Oh, it's you. You're pointing to you. Okay, go for it. Thank you. So Catherine lifts up what I think was a pretty widely shared cultural experience. If you were watching Monday Night Football, you saw that horrifying episode of the player having cardiac arrest on the field and being resuscitated on the field. And then that, what Catherine was pointing us to is the outpouring of public and open prayer and his embrace of that and other folks' embrace of that. Hmm. Okay, we'll do two more. And then we'll just go home. <laughs> I was aware of Thanksgiving. Friday night, we gathered here in the sanctuary in the fellowship hall for a dinner and a service of um, families and children. Anyone was welcome, but lots of families for children, young and old, to celebrate Epiphany, the ending of the Christmas season. And it was such a joyful evening for me to see so many vibrant children Sherry's lifting up. We had Epiphany, as you know, closes Christmas. We have Christmas as a season in the church. And we had a potluck and a service here that was meant for all ages. And it was a joy to be here. And Sherry's lifting up the gift of, of uh, the children that were running around and doing all kinds of things. And Sherry sat with a, a girl who is not ours, but is ours. And all throughout, there were these questions being whispered back and forth. And it's just, what a gift, right? What a gift to the extended family. La last one, Mary Beth. Yes. That's terrific. So Mary Beth is, is lifting up. We often pray for people who are in a situation, but maybe we should also be praying for their caregivers. 
often who go uncredited, um, but also who need that in uh, that infusion of grace and wisdom and the right listening and the right speaking. Let's pray. Holy One, what a gift it is to be in a place that feels safe to share, that feels connected enough to make it worthwhile to share, that feels daring enough to recognize we don't have what it takes within our individual selves to make it through this world, that we need each other and that we need you. And so each time we pray in community, we're acting courageously to widen our circle, to deepen our grounding. Thank you for being a God that listens, that holds us, that speaks to and through us. And so now we join our hearts and our voices in speaking the words that Jesus the Christ taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
for those of us that are going to stay in here are going to find out why it's there. And maybe they can explain it to you later. But I want to share something with you. Kind of, I want to tell you an embarrassing story. Is that okay? <laughs> so, I, maybe this is kind of embarrassing too. I didn't really, I wasn't as lucky as you. I didn't really go to church very much as a kid. I only went a handful of times. And my family was reminding me uh, of one of the things that happened on one of the few times that I was at church. I remember we had these, at my mom's church, where she went, there were these armrests at the end of the aisles. And I really wanted to sit there. I want, even though I wasn't tall enough, I liked the idea of putting my arm on the armrest, you know? It made me feel powerful as a little tiny person. <laughs> you know what I mean. That's why you're here. Yeah. So... I was sitting there, and the people were bringing the offering forward and back, and I didn't know what that was really about. I didn't know what the routine was, because I didn't go very much. And I had to sneeze really bad. And I knew that I'm not supposed to sneeze on someone sitting next to me. So I turned into the aisle, and I sneezed, big sneeze, achoo, you know, out, right as the people were walking by, and I sneezed all over the offering and the person holding it. That was one of the few times I went to church. And you know what everyone did? They all turned around and looked. What happened there? You know, I didn't get to go very much, but I do remember running around some. I remember seeing some people I knew. I think um, we should keep this as an embarrassing monument. <laughs> it's an embarrassing monument. We could make a statue of a kid sneezing. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established 
justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his coming. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See the former things that have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. That reading almost preaches itself. This is Baptism of the Lord Sunday. As backdrop, I arranged for a few showers, and I'm sorry if I overdid it last night, but um, a little bit of a reprieve. The account of this comes from Matthew's Gospel, the third chapter, verses 13 to 17. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to us, the gathered church today. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This too is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. On this Baptism of the Lord Sunday, it's worth beginning with a simple question. Why? Why did Jesus have to be baptized? If he was who we say he was, why on earth would he need to be baptized? I mean, that was clearly John's question. Why are you coming to me? Here was John, this kind of fiery, perhaps slightly off man, coming out of the wilderness, uh, preaching a little bit of fire and brimstone, telling people to repent and turn from their ways and immersing them in water as part of this ritual. Repent, change. Why would Jesus need to do that? Now, one of the conventional answers points to the last part of the passage where the skies open up and at least Jesus in this account and the other account, others hear the voicing, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased, the one I've chosen. Okay? But why match up that pronouncement with that ritual? And what does it mean for us in our practice of that ritual? Rituals are deeply important. And yet, perhaps we don't embrace them as much in this culture as we could, and we could stand to benefit from deeper uh, rituals in our lives. I was just listening to an interview this week with author, theologian, activist, uh, sort of, and rebel priest, Matthew Fox. And one of the things he was talking about was how starved as a people we are for meaningful ritual in our culture. And he, was, he wasn't speaking of secular culture, he was speaking about the church, too, how anemic some of our rituals are. And, and Fox is an ousted Catholic and practicing Episcopalian, and they actually do better on rituals than we Reformed Protestants do, right? We just get up and talk. But we do have baptism. 
We do have baptism. And yet, my experience is many of us don't have much understanding of what's happening at baptism because we come from a people who distrusted ritual. And that's a shame. In fact, I, I include myself in the ignorant on this too. I'm not pointing fingers at you. When I was in seminary, we took a course on baptism and one of the assignments was to write about your own baptism. But the problem was so many of us were Presbyterians. We were all baptized as infants and none of us remembered our baptisms. So we all had to ask people and do research to figure out the circumstances of our own baptisms. I wonder what you would find out if you researched your own baptism, where it was, who did it, who was there, what was said, what was done, what did you wear? Right? How many generations did, your, uh, did that, your baby's outfit, how many is that shared? Like 15 or 20 generations wore the outfit of this child that was baptized a couple weeks ago. I wore the same thing that my son wore, that my uncle wore, that my mother wore, that my grand, at least two generations above us wore. Right? All these things, right? But we didn't know any of it until we had to uh, look it up or ask about it. In fact, one of the meaningful moments of that class, since we'd never had a chance to experience baptisms personally, was when we had to practice on either dolls or stuffed animals or one another. And most of us had never been conscious for a baptism of ourselves. And there was not a dry eye in the room when one of my classmates, who was a 65-year-old retired attorney, got on his knees and somebody put water on his head and baptized him. Such power. Fox says, uh, we've just lost meaningful ways to move through the world. Our rites of passage are thin and anemic. We need ways that don't, it's not that they help us make sense of things, but they help us navigate the world. And this baptism of the Lord's Sunday, it's worth gaining a bit of a deeper understanding and experience of the sacrament. And I guess, having said that, I should back up and first say, well, what is a sacrament? Talk about what that means. The simplest definition of sacrament that's often repeated is it's an outward sign of an inward what? Does anybody know? Reality, uh, reality is good. The phrase is of an inward grace. Outward sign of an inward grace. It is all about reality, though, Elizabeth. You're correct. That definition is attributed to Augustine of the 5th century. And the point is, exactly actually as Elizabeth was pointing us to, it's to make tactile and tangible through touching and smelling and tasting and embodying what is otherwise elusive to the senses. The presence of the divine. The reality of the sacred. If we can touch it, if we can taste it, if we can smell it, if we can do something, we can experience it. It's not... And, and, and Christians understand the sacraments very differently. There's a lot of diversity. But in our tradition, it's not conjuring a new reality. It's pointing to a reality that is there that we need to open ourselves to. So for us in our tradition, baptism is not the conferring of grace on a child or an adult, the, the performing of any magic. Well, not in the traditional sense of magic. It's a recognition for us in baptism, what we're doing is recognizing that God's grace comes to us first. That the life of faith is not about our ability to decide for and love God. The life of faith begins with our appreciation that God decides for and accepts and loves us. And we do everything in response. And that's why we're comfortable baptizing infants. Because it's not about their capacity to love. It's about us recognizing God's capacity to love. Baptism has so many connotations. It's a ritual washing. It probably is derived from some Jewish uh, purity practices of, of ritual bathing, a cleansing of an old way so that one can be ready for a new way. It's a ritual death. Did you know that? It's a ritual dying. Whenever we baptize, we ritually perform a death and a resurrection. We say we die to a way of being and we're reborn into Christ in a new way. It's, that's powerful, right? Power of that ritual. So many connotations of what baptism can mean. That's the gift of ritual, too, is it's layered and layered and layered with meaning. Well, we could go all day in a million directions about what, uh, how people understand baptism, but we have a window of non-rain, and I don't think you want to spend all afternoon here. 
So let's just focus for exploration around the three vows that we take in this church. And by this church, I don't mean Westminster. I mean this denomination. Three vows dictated by our Constitution that we take on the occasion of baptism, because they might be a window into understanding at a little bit deeper level. Does anybody know what they are? And if you do, you'll kind of spoil the sermon, because then I have nothing to teach you. So at this point, if you have ignorance, it's a gift to the community. <laughs> Thank you. All right. No, but you can shout them out if you know. Anybody know what the first one is? Renunciation of evil. Renunciation of evil. I drop my sentences. I'm sorry. Yell at me when I do that. Renunciation of evil. The second one, to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the third, to participate actively in the life and ministry of the church, or if you're baptizing a child, to promise to provide for the Christian nurture of that child. So let's take them in order. Renunciation of evil. Evil repels people. Well, actually, evil, I think, attracts some people. I mean, the word evil repels people. We don't like to talk about things like evil in a church like this. We're sophisticated people. We're enlightened people. We're evolved. We're civilized. Evil sounds superstitious and beneath us. But sometimes I think we confuse enlightenment with seeing things clearly for what they really are and naming them honestly for what they really are. And if you really are looking at the world and you're not putting your head in the sand, it's pretty hard to deny that there's evil in the world. And if evil is too much of a roadblock, if that word has way too much baggage for you, as always, your job is to translate. So what's another word that you could use? Destructive, exploitative, abusive, harmful, harmful, unjust. You heard that gorgeous reading that Jim gave moments ago. The prophets, time and again, talk about faith as establishing justice on this earth. Justice is the opposite of evil, and there is plenty of the opposite of justice loose in the world. Our first vow is not about saying what we are. It's about what we stand apart from and what we will stand up to. That's the calling of the Christian, is to renounce that with some vigor. It's not to say we're holier than thou, but we will make an effort to stand apart from that, and we will be honest about its presence in the world. And it takes some gumption. After the first service, uh, one of the members was, was talking about how they were a godfather in a Russian Orthodox baptism. And at that point, you have, you have to renounce the devil. And when he had to renounce the devil, he had to, as part of the ritual, turn and spit. That's renunciation of evil. As you know, I'm kind of a follower of John Philip Newell, so I'll tell a story that he tells about uh, leading, I think, worship in a rural Scottish church, but it may have been Irish. Forgive me for confusing the two. Um, and at one point, and you'll forgive my language, they renounce evil, but in this little village, they've taken to a tradition where they say, do you renounce evil in all its ways, or the devil in all his ways? And the congregation responds, we do the dirty bastard. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. But that's... That's ritual embodying the fervor with which we want to stand apart from that. And that's why it's not enough. And that's too harsh. It's, it's incomplete. It's not full enough for your faith to just be personal and private. And that's not to uh, make fun of your personal and private faith or your devotional life. Not at all. It's always to push you to be bigger, to make your circle wider. That Our first vow says you have to get outside yourself and confront the realities of the world as an individual and as a body. Renounce evil. Stand apart from it. Humbly recognizing you may be off in your definition, but it shouldn't stop you from trying. Second, who can repeat what the second vow is? And I'm going to guess you're going to get it wrong, but I guessed wrong in the first service. And I want you to get it wrong, so don't be bashful. What's the second vow? You got it right, too. Man, Ruthie got it right in the first service, and Betty got it right. She said, proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Man, you all are good. I thought you were going to say, Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. Your Lord and Savior. Your is not in the vow. 
so much of the church has reduced the faith into this one-on-one transaction. It's just about you and your relationship with Jesus. And I don't mean to make fun of that. I know that's sacred to people, so I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, cavalier about that or flippant. It's not just about your individual relationship with Jesus. As if God sent Jesus to hand out tickets to heaven, and if you just say the magic words, you get in, but you don't have to change your life on earth. You just say the words, and it's over. What a silly reduction of the faith that is, if we think about it. Faith is so much bigger. It's so much bigger. It's not just about your, and it's not just personal. Is the vow is not, is, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Is Jesus Lord and Savior? Subtle but important difference. And it helps to understand the context in which it was born. In the time of the early church in Jesus' life, uh, who was Lord and Savior? Because here's a little hint. The terms were not invented with him. They predated him. Lord and Savior was a title that predated Jesus. Just like Son of God was a title that predated Jesus. Just like being born of a virgin was something that had happened many times before Jesus, according to lore. Those are all titles borrowed and applied to Jesus, and they're borrowed from whom? I heard it. Caesar. When the early Christians, and this was the first profession of the church, said Jesus is Lord, they were saying silently, and Caesar is not. When you proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're acknowledging who is the ultimate authority, who is the ultimate model, what is the way of being in the world that is most supreme, What is our orientation? Who will order our lives? And what are the sets of values around which we will order it? That's what it means to make that vow. It's about living on this earth as much as it is about getting into heaven. You're all getting in, so don't worry, okay? And I know people don't like to mix their politics and their religion, but the first profession of faith of the church was a profoundly political and spiritual vow. And I don't actually separate the two. I don't think there's a difference between the two. It's a public profession. It's a cosmic profession and an earthly profession. It's Jesus, Lord, and Savior. Third, will you participate actively in the life of the church? Or will you provide for the Christian nurture of the child? Both of those, which seem like very different promises, point to the same reality. And that is, for us, baptism is always a communal good. It's not just when we say that God has claimed us, though we say that too. It's when we say, we claim one another. That's why the font is in the middle of the community. You almost never, except with rare exceptions, see a Presbyterian baptism that is done privately. It doesn't make sense for us in that setting because it's how we promise to be for one another. Once in a while, we'll get a call. Well, pastors will get a call from a hospital. They don't have a chaplain and they need somebody to come quickly because there is a family with a dying baby and they want that child baptized. Immediately you go and you baptize the child. And You find a time afterwards to say, just so you know, if I didn't make it here in time, your child is okay and would have been okay. Their eternal fate was not in danger. Because it's not about the water we bring or the hands that pour it on. That's about God's love and God's providence. And you're good. Your child is okay. Because for us, it doesn't doesn't make sense outside the community because we're not doing anything magical to the child. What's magical is a community coming together and saying, we will raise one another because we recognize that this American idea that the nuclear family is enough to get through the world is nonsense. You need a bigger network and we're promising to be there for each other. So you know that moment that we all love, it melts us all whenever we bring a baby up front and and put water on its head. If it's Bethany, just a little water. If it's me, it's slobbered levels of water. We know who the babies prefer. And then we hold it up, and we walk around and say, this is your new sister or brother, Christ. 
and everybody melts. I don't care what kind of mood you're in or if you liked the sermon or you didn't, and I can tell. Everybody melts, right? The question the third vow asks of us is will we melt when that child shows up in a different way? Will we show up for other occasions in that child's life? Will we go to their games? Will we show up at their performances? Will we teach their Sunday school classes? Will we be a confirmation mentor? Will we just informally get to know their family so that the network is expanded? And God forbid, when they get into trouble, will we show up too? We showed up at their baptism date. Will we show up at their court date? That's the test of a church, not whether they can oogle over a baptism. Baptism is not the last word. Baptism is the first word in a lifelong promise that we make to one another and to God in God's presence, which leads us back to our opening question. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he submit to this? And the simplest answer is because this story about Jesus is like every story about Jesus. They're not just about Jesus. It's about us. Jesus does these things to show us the way. And so often in the church, we sort of just watch these stories of Jesus and say, wow, that's amazing. Look what he did. And then we go back to our own lives. But the whole point of what he did was to invite us to come along and to do it too. And so he humbles himself and he dies to a way of being or he shows us that to be alive and to grow is to die over and over again and to be born over and over again and to renew over and again. And he chooses what we would call a sacrament later because it's pointing to a reality that there is sacredness in the world. In fact, the whole thing is sacred. And the whole thing is about dying to... uh, the illusion that it's all profane and being born to the reality that it's all sacred and receiving that free gift and then going around and treating everybody like it's so. That's why Jesus does it. So the waters of baptism are here to tell us that that way isn't just for Jesus. That that way is for all of us. It's for all of us, and it's always here, except for this morning, apparently. (laughs) I didn't look at 8.30. Somebody's got to go get some water before the end of the service and pour it in here. It'll come in the roof otherwise. But it's always here, and you can dip in any time. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. I should have trusted her. If you saw, I went out during the silence to get water to refill the font. A few moments before that, my wife got up, and I should have known what she was doing, because she came back with water later. And there's a story you should know. We were pastors together in our first church, and one of the it was the first Sunday, I think, that I was at her church as a new pastor. And I'll say it gently, that church was in disarray. And there was a baptism. And they went for the moment, and there was nothing in the font. And so Sherry went back and got a pitcher of water and filled the font. And so it is her vocation to fill empty fonts. And I did not trust. And I apologize for that. In life, be the person that can go get the pitcher when it's dry, friends. A few announcements to share as we get ready to go from this place. Uh, one of you made, and maybe this has been resolved, but I don't know if it's been resolved. One of you made a, a generous donation to us. It's only one of you, so I'm asking the rest of you to step up. That's a joke. One, one of you made a donation that came to us through Vanguard and it had an amount attached, obviously, but did not have a name attached. And so we can't properly thank you, nor can we record that gift and give you a proper accounting of it. And obviously, they can't release donor information. So if you made a contribution to us that way, and it's a reminder if you ever do that, to make sure that you notify us so that you can get proper credit for that. If you need to ask further information, you can talk to one of the staff, and we can answer your questions. Um, before I want to do something with Bob, I'm going to invite Stephen to come on in. In the church, as you know, this has been a season of transition. And we ended the year with some saying goodbye. We said goodbye to uh, Tracy in uh, the office, and we said goodbye to Jesus, who's been minding this facility for so many years. It's now a season of saying hello. And so I'm really pleased to introduce to you Stephen Hendricks. Hello. Uh, Stephen, uh, yeah. Yeah, just wait till they get to know you. It would be better. Stephen is our new sexton. And really, I'm thinking of him, and I think we're thinking of him as, as a facilities manager. He brings some different skill sets to the table. The position has um, changed a little bit since Jesus' time. Uh, we've hired a cleaning service to do some of the regular cleaning throughout the week, but we're retaining a personal touch in a sexton who will do our hospitality, as well as our maintenance and repair work, and probably some bigger visioning about the oversight of the facilities. Stephen has extensive skill set in uh, handyman work and other repairs, as well as customer service in a number of uh, organizations. And we're thrilled to have you here. One of the things I really appreciate you as a congregation is how you treat your staff. You're kind to them, to us. You're respectful. You treat us like people, not just staff. And I really appreciate that about you. And I know in a moment you're going to clap for him to welcome him. But even more than that, just like the commitments we make are always need to be repeated day after day after day if those vows are to become powerful, you will welcome him as you get to know him, and you appreciate him, and you work alongside him. So, Stephen, welcome to Westminster. God bless you in your work here, and thank you for coming to be a part of us. If you haven't met Lark Halpern, she's not here on Sundays. Stephen is obviously here on Sundays. I invite you to come by the office sometime, middle of the day, and meet Lark. She's our new office administrator, and likewise has just entered a, a new place with a, a fantastic attitude, and she brings a lot to the table. And now I'd like to invite Bob Miller forward and Chris Miller along with him. It's fitting and simply a coincidence, or maybe the work of God, that on a day where we talk about the power of ritual, we're going to do some, a ritual to honor a transition in life, to, to hopefully have a rite of passage that's meaningful. Come on up here. We try, whenever we learn about it, to honor changes in people's lives. And one of the big changes in life is retirement. I didn't realize, is your, is your birthday today? Not only is it your birthday today, but we're here to honor Bob's retirement from the field of medicine. It's a big moment, and thank you for letting us into this so that we can go on this journey with you.
I have notes, but something came to me this morning that I want to say. They say that Luke was a physician, right? The name associated with one of the Gospels. Why would they have one of the Gospels associated with a doctor? Because the Gospel is about healing. Personal healing, social healing, communal healing. What you have done is Gospel, Bob. You are a healer. Not all of your patients were cured, and all of us patients die eventually. But we can be healed along the way. We endure beyond the transitions of our lives, and we take on new roles. But it's worth acknowledging when our roles shift. And part of this community is going to remind you that you're more than just a doctor. You have an identity bigger and deeper than that. Even as you say goodbye to that particular part of your identity, they will remind you that you are a beloved child of Christ, baptized in the living water. How long have you been practicing medicine? 43 years. years. What I want to say to you is all of us here have an experience of being a patient. But only a few of us have an experience on the other side of things. So only you know the things that you've carried in caring for many of your patients. And many of your patients had ALS, one of the most devastating diseases in the world. Who could match such a positive, uplifting person with such a devastating disease but God? So I wonder now if you might call to mind, if it helps to close your eyes, you can, but you don't have to, some of your patients and colleagues over the years. I want you to imagine their faces, including those who've gone to heaven. I want you to imagine them coming before you, coming up to you, perhaps putting a hand on your shoulder and looking into your eyes and saying, thank you, Dr. Bob. And then I want you to imagine one other person who comes up And even though you've got a good memory, you don't remember tending to them. And he comes to you and says, Bob, I'm Jesus. And whatever you did to these, you did unto me. Well done, good and faithful servant. And Chris, that same Christ comes to you and acknowledges your own work and your own healing and all the sacrifices you have made for all the long hours he has put in because we recognize it's a family ministry. And Christ says to you as well, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray together. Good and great God, author of healing, spirit of transitions, we give you thanks for Bob's career for the support of his family, his colleagues, the sacrifices that have been made all the way around. Bless him as he makes this transition to a new chapter with new adventure and new discovery. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've asked Bob, as part of a ritual, to bring something to leave behind to signify what he's leaving. And he's brought, this is a reflex hammer, right? So in a moment... I'm going to invite him to leave the reflex hammer on the communion table and perhaps on his way out to touch another tool of the trade, which is the waters of baptism that go with you from this place. We love you. Whenever you want it, sir. Now and later, if you want it. The closing hymn is 475.
Friends, as you go from this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit, may it go with you this day and every day. Amen.